Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Kyle Krause, the Iowa-based owner of Italian top flight club Parma. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Kate Abdo, Serginio Dest, and Arlo White, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. While I've got you, check out American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story, which has episode two coming out this week of seven on Tuesday, and subscribe to that one. Put a lot of heart and soul into that project over the last five months, and I think you'll enjoy it. We'll have Kyle Krause on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right. I'm uh, a bit drunk off the MLS playoffs, and uh, it's been a fun weekend. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely incredible. Like, I, I feel like the MLS playoffs, if you know, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like this kind of every year at this point. Single elimination playoffs. Literally just about 10 minutes ago, we're recording this on Sunday night, right around 7.20 p.m. Kansas City advances against San Jose on penalty kicks after an insane 3-3 tie in which both teams scored an added time, including Chris Wondolowski in like the 97th minute, which was... Just kind of par for the course so far in the MLS playoffs. <laughs> Let's talk about this game right now. Um, I mean, are you okay? I'm okay with how much added time was allowed here, right? Because, like, this wasn't Fergie time necessarily. This was Kansas City scored in added time and took a heck of a long time to celebrate. And so even though this extended quite a bit beyond the announced added time, I felt like it was the right amount. Yeah, and uh, Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com did the math on the amount of wasted time from Kansas City. It was like a minute and 40 seconds between the goal and the restart and about 40 seconds for Tim Melia to take the ball and, and put it back in play. And that about adds up to the amount of time that was added on to the end of added on time. So it was completely fine by me. Uh, and, and look, I mean, if you're a Kansas City supporter, like I get it. If you're looking at the clock and seeing, you know, plus five and there's 9730 on the clock, you're going, how did that happen? But you know, I, I think it's about right. And Wando deserves that. I feel like Chris Wondolowski has kind of become a cult hero. Sam Stagecoe of The Athletic wrote a great piece about him. And he's kind of achieving the cult hero status that he probably he's always had in San Jose. Um, but right. I think the, the 2014 incident, uh, which unfortunately always gets brought up, and I hate that, but it just always will. But I think now the MLS fans that are like diehard into MLS appreciate Wando, and he, he deserved that moment, even though unfortunately didn't come in a win. I mean, Tim Melier should get a ton of credit for saving all three penalties for San Jose in a totally one-sided penalty kick shootout. And look, I... I I am sort of this, like, I'm not even like a Homer, Kansas City guy. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm from Kansas City, and I love what Sporting Kansas City has done to make soccer really relevant in the Kansas City area. Um, But I'm also a traditional journalist, and so I'm not sitting here fist-pumping for Kansas City necessarily, even though I, I like it when they succeed. And I just think this entire playoffs is insane in a good way. And I find myself screaming at my television. My <laughs> wife is is with me in the room. She just is not a sports fan. And she just laughs at me the whole time. And I, I this is sort of why we 
get into sports, right? Yes. I mean, like, to to feel like an idiot and just scream at the television. Right, and we'll get to the Orlando NYCFC incredible ending, but <laughs> that's exactly, that. like, you're absolutely right. People are saying, oh, this is a terrible look for the league, and, you know, like, getting all high and mighty about how it was bad that Alan Chapman didn't know the rules. And admittedly, it's bad that Alan Chapman didn't know the rules, but at the same time, I was jumping up and down in my apartment celebrating how insane that was. And, and you're right, I mean, the, the, the moment at the end of the game the goal from Sporting Kansas City was gorgeous that, that looked like the winning goal the flick from Kyrie Shelton the think to yeah. do that in that spot and as you said uh, Tim Melia's performance in the penalty shootout I mean that's as good as it gets Osvaldo Alanis's take was probably not the best uh, right. but still to save all three penalties when Tim Melia again the MLS fans know this dude's incredible against penalties in regular season play. It's 11 of 25 saves uh, versus penalties faced. Faces, you know, t- faces three in the playoffs, saves all of them, and, and Sporting Kansas City progress. It's just, it's incredible drama, and it's been so much fun. You know, I should say to the listeners, we are recording this before the the late two MLS playoff elimination games on Sunday night, so... Maybe more insane stuff happens. We're not going to be able to address it here. But or maybe it regresses of... to the mean and becomes boring. <laughs> it, it might. It might. But like, <laughs> let's talk about Orlando City against NYCFC, which I, I thought it was a great sort of keynote address for the rest. I, I, I realize we had some games Friday night, but like the first game on Saturday, and it goes to penalties and just turns into one of the more ridiculous things you could have ever seen in a penalty shootout. I'll be honest with you. I forgot that MLS was still on the 2019-2020 rules, which I guess makes sense to some extent because this season did start in what seems like eight years ago in Mm -hmm. the early part of 2020. And so... In that rule system, which has been changed for any other league taking place right now, um, if Galese, the goalkeeper for Orlando City, had come off his line by a few inches, which is what happened here on a penalty save, he would get a warning and not an immediate yellow card. And instead, he gets the yellow card and gets sent <laughs> off. After he's, we think he they, he's made the save to win it in advance. Right. They set they set off the, the the fireworks and all that. Like they're they're ready to celebrate in Orlando. And and so, I mean, like honestly, I think it's crazy that Galese is going to miss the next game because of this nonsense. And yet, the fact like he, there there was so much happening here, but. The mere fact that Orlando City is advancing, and it, it, sometimes I think of, you know how if you go on like the ESPN app during an NFL game, they have that like percentage likelihood to win graphic. <laughs> so yeah. essentially, Orlando City must have had a really high likelihood percentage to win. And then Galeza gets sent off, they retake the kick. And so we eventually find out that they can't put Roe, the other goalkeeper, in, that they have to put an outfield (laughs) player in the goal. Right. And it's Rodrigo Schlegel, who I swear, I tweeted this, on his first couple penalty save attempts, looked like a fan who had won a contest (laughs) to become a goalkeeper. Gave zero indication that he might actually make a save. 
Right. There was a report. There was a report that he had apparently been a goalkeeper at academy level. It did not look it. It did not look no. like he had ever once played in goal, not even in a five-a-side game. No. I'm crying right now, literally, because <laughs> like even when he makes the save, it's not. It's not like great goalkeeper. He was like, he was like flapping his arms and like he was able to get to it. Yeah, it was. If you're, it just... if, if you're the NYCFC guy, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like seriously, I don't even remember who took it. But it's it oh, just my... it was such a blur. But I'm like to, for for oh. me, my favorite part of that. Uh, of, of the whole, it was Gudmundur Thoreinsen, by the way, the Iceland, the Iceland international who, who had who had his penalty saved. But for me, my favorite part of that is I called multiple people who weren't watching the game and attempted to explain to them what happened, and like I left out major details, like for example, when Rodrigo Schlegel makes that save, the referee blew for full time. Thinking that Orlando had won, the, the penalty shootout was still tied. Like it, it still required Benji Michelle. <laughs> and he, even I don't know. I like, knew that. Even I knew that. I was like, I was right. like what are you guys I doing? Like, I was like, I understand, like vigorously celebrating that Schlegel had made this save, but they had celebrated like it was a, a a victory celebration. I'm like, wait a second, they haven't taken like it's it's still tied. I, I mean, we're we're also leaving out what happened in you know the 120 minutes of play, which included Huan <laughs> absolutely clearing out Anton Tinderholm, somehow only getting yellow, then going studs up into an NYCFC player, getting sent off, then Anton Tinderholm was subbed for a con- for a concussion that was not like an NYCFC decision, an MLS decision to yank him off the field. Then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and other details. When Galese makes the save, Oscar Pareja ran to the tunnel to go celebrate <laughs> with Juan, who was back in the locker room after getting sent off. Then a team official's got to tell him, no, they're reviewing it. He's got to run back out there while inexplicably wearing cleats. Why does Oscar Pareja wear cleats when he's coaching? He's not going to play. <laughs> like, there's just so many things happening that you could so easily forget. I can't, I can't get over this. I mean, like, <laughs> we're not even going to talk about Europe this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I mean, like, forget this it. Is, this I is mean, so much better. Like, I, I, I don't know how to put this to somebody who, like, just hates MLS because, like, fine, you'll never, you'll never embrace it. Fine, but this is, it's pretty great. And this stuff is like, I'll admit, I'm not a huge MLS regular season fan. I'm a huge MLS playoffs fan. (laughs) And, and for, for this type of reason, and I'm not somebody like, I love to embrace the chaos. Like I do feel like there was some ridiculousness in the Orlando city game that was sort of bad ridiculous yeah, as opposed to fun ridiculous, but there's a lot of fun ridiculous in, in MLS and it's our, it's our league. And I'll, I'll tell you what, this, this weekend has been a lot of fun even before these two games on, on Sunday night. So um, is there anything else you, I, I, we haven't even talked about other MLS playoff games. I mean, like, home teams winning basically right yeah i mean columbus you know taking care of business they went from a goal down to up 3-1 red bulls with a good late charge i mean i would say you know obviously the covid situation with miami and them laying an egg uh, in in their postseason match was uh, not a good look for them and, and ultimately a pretty uh, poor uh, ending to their season i mean new england had a 97th minute winner which pretty is like great. the most boring thing that which is the most boring thing that happened this weekend in in, in the mls playoff games that we've had so far uh, which was a really cool strike from Gustavo. 
Gustavo Bo from the from outside the area. Uh, so New England's going through. As you mentioned, all the home teams have won, which it's sort of like, you know, like when people who hate soccer will go, oh, it's just 22 guys running around kicking a ball, right? Like the oversimplification. The oversimplification of the MLS playoffs is, oh, the home team's won. <laughs> But like you'd have to, you have to have watched the games to know that there's an absolute amount of mayhem therein. And I should also say, Tuesday night we get three more MLS playoff elimination games: Toronto, Nashville, Philadelphia, New England, and Seattle LAFC, which is a crazy game to have this early in the playoffs. So it's pretty great entertainment. Before we sign off here and go to our interview with Kyle Kraus, I guess my question for you is this: How do you feel about my? preference that MLS playoffs are so great that we should do this twice a year. We should go full Mexico, Hmm. have a split season, and then so two sets, two regular seasons, two sets of playoffs in one calendar year. Uh, I just, I don't see the way in which you divide the seasons up that that is like satisfactory, right? Because like, the MLS schedule is kind of so broken to begin with, right? Because it doesn't follow the normal calendar. At least kind of, I know it's arbitrary, but like the August or, or you know, late July to mid-December Apertura and the January to May Clausura, I don't know why it just makes sense to me. Whereas I think in MLS, you'd literally just be drawing an arbitrary line in the middle of the season, you know, based on, and, and look, I mean, maybe you can even change it so that in some ways, it's a bit of promotion relegation, right? Because like you could have maybe like the top half of each conference goes into the second tournament, and the bottom half goes. It like I, I don't know, like maybe you can figure out a way to kind of make that happen. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know, like what would be the hook other than just we're just gonna have two sets of playoffs just cause, you know? I mean, I, I just would say this: I think the gap of excitement between MLS regular season and MLS playoffs is gigantic. Yeah, and. I don't think I don't think you need 34 regular season games. I just don't. Well, I, I mean, I think the the owners would disagree because of the the, you know, the, <laughs> the the home games and the gate that they need. For me, I, I guess I, I've always wondered because I think baseball has a similar problem, right? You play 162 games, but the playoffs are a thousand times more exciting. The way you make regular seasons more exciting to me is by shrinking the playoff field, right? I think if you know you have middling teams that are ones battling it out and ultimately your LAFCs and your Seattle Sounders in a normal season and this year the Union and Toronto FC have nothing to play for other than the supporters shield like when your best teams have nothing to play for that's when your sport gets less fun and ultimately the playoff chase is about your most mediocre teams figuring out who's the best of the mediocre that's why it's not interesting whereas I think if you shrunk the playoff field and you eliminated good teams in the regular season and good teams were deciding who was going to make the postseason, then I think you, you, you'd have more interest. But ultimately, MLS and other American sports leagues think we want to keep as many markets engaged as possible. And so let's expand the playoff field so that, you know, Miami, for instance, they had a playoff game, right? Despite, you know, losing in the end, what is it, 14 out of the 24 games that they played? Like, that's not a playoff team. But in, in this, it, like, Miami was still engaged and maybe tuned in, on, tuned in on Friday night to watch a playoff game because a play it was called a playoff game. So I kind of understand the, the struggle between business and competitive, but that for me is why the regular season is less interesting because the regular season is kind of revolving around your most average teams. Yeah, I, I feel like a losing team in the regular season should never make the playoffs, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I, I, I'm thrilled that the MLS playoffs have gotten off to a great start. I think it will continue. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, they'll get to stage the games with all the COVID situation. But so far, so good. In any case, 
Thank you so much, as always, Chris, for joining me. That was a great laugh. I just feel like like we were giddy, like we had you know sucked up helium from a balloon when we were talking about the Orlando game, because that's what the entire experience felt like. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z. And you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Portugal, Brazil, and Argentina. Plus, Fanatis has the Copa Libertadores with some terrific round of 16 matchups starting this Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports in English and Spanish, Goal TV, and many more. And it only costs $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here is my interview with Kyla Kraus. Our guest now is Kyle Kraus. He's the Iowa-based chairman and CEO of Kraus Group and also the longtime owner of the Des Moines Menace soccer team. And he recently became the owner of Italian Serie A team Parma. Kyle, thanks for coming on the show. Grant, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because I'm kind of fascinated here. Congratulations on buying Parma. And I think the first question anyone has is, how does a guy from Iowa end up buying a top-flight soccer team in Italy? Well, I think it's a fantastic question. Um, I wasn't sure how it was going to happen when we kind of started this process. And so for me, uh, my mom's family is Italian, so I'm Italian-American, kind of despite my last name. And for me, it's one of those dreams to someday, you know, own a soccer team in Italy. I mean, what a what a great thing, you know, could I ever do that someday? And as... I was trying to get a little smarter on what would that look like? What would that be? What type of team? I was starting to kind of look around more in 2020 just to really ramp up my knowledge for that future date of which I would do something. And as I was doing that, networking, and I say, actually, I should say I was concurrently networking in Italy for our pro-Iowa movement to have a USL championship team in Des Moines. So, Again, Italian heritage, how do I connect back to Italy with the Pro-Iowa network? And then as I'm doing this, there's some teams that may or may not be for sale in Syria. So now I start to work a little, you know, which ones are they? Try to get a little smarter around that. And uh, it was just a combination of probably interest, networking, you know, good people on my team at Kraus Group to do some do some work. And um, it, it came together. And and why Parma, you know, as opposed to buying a different Italian soccer team? I know you have a background, your family had a background in Sicily uh, or or a team in England or somewhere else in Europe. Well, for me, it was going to be Italian uh, for both a personal, you know, strong bias. um, And also, I think from an opportunity standpoint, I'm excited about the opportunities in Italy from the Serie A standpoint. But I think Parma itself was 
it was that opportunity to sort of reflect and say, okay, there are a couple choices potentially, uh, which one, which one makes the most sense. And so it was a thing where as I, as I looked at the other choices of what may be available, uh, Parmer was just had everything going for it that I thought made the most sense. And that was, you know, it's got a fantastic history. I mean, what a great brand, uh, for years ago, the great history, the great tradition that is, you know, hard to replicate with someone else that maybe, you know, whatever, a newly promoted side in the Serie A or something like that. Parmer's a fantastic area of which it's, you've got huge successful com- companies based there. Um, you've got a stadium that has a nice history that's ready to be renovated as an opportunity. Uh, you have a fan base that is supportive and positive um, from a fan base standpoint. Um, and so all those things kind of came together. And um, we have a home two hours away. And okay. so it's in a proximity that is even positive from that standpoint. You know, for me, as I mix other businesses in Italy, uh, to get to as many games as possible, to be in Parma as often as possible. So there's a litany of reasons. And I actually reflected after we did the transaction, you look back and say, you know, did we do the right one? Is this where we should be? And it really checked on every box I thought it was going to check on and then some. So I, it was um, the perfect location opportunity for us. With the COVID situation, how much time have you been able to spend in Italy with the team and the club? Well, for me, I've had the opportunity to get back and forth quite a bit. Um, I'm, you know, I've been to I guess most of our games at this point. I, I've said immediately I'm not going to be at every game. I mean, it's just not really. We have other companies, other businesses. I'm not going to be there. But I've had an opportunity to be at most of our games, and I'll continue to go back and forth. And so, the COVID piece has uh, personally, because of the business side of my reasons for being in Italy, has not kept me from being in Italy. Now, you, you, you may jump through a few more hoops to make it happen, but because of the business side, I'm able able to go back and forth. Certainly, it's got a whole lot of other effects from fans in the stands and all those other kind of things happening, but it has not completely constricted me yet. Have you had the opportunity to to spend time with any of the fans there? I, I know it's it's tough to be with gatherings of, of people, but I, I would assume you want to sort of develop a relationship with the fans of Parma. I'm really sensitive and all of Parma culture is really sensitive about what we're doing from a social distancing standpoint. And so it's been difficult and certainly more difficult now as numbers around the world continue to escalate um, from a COVID standpoint that based on your household, you, you know a lot more about that than I do. So I won't spend much time talking about that. You can talk, you can talk to your wife. Uh, but from, from the fans, I have met some fans uh, certainly the first few games we had, we had a thousand fans in the stands so that you have a little bit of fan interaction, but really my fan interaction has just been walking down the street of Harmer, which I'm doing you know, every day I'm there and having our fan base come up for the, the selfie and the photo. And they've been super positive and, um, very supportive of having some Americans show up and, and buy, you know, their soccer team. So from that, my interactions have been one-on-one, but all very, very positive. What have the fans told you about what they want? You know, the first thing you talk about is you have to, you know, in Italian, you have to stay in the, you have to maintain the category. We would say avoid relegation. Right. And so first thing is, okay, you know, they, they, they had the bankruptcy five years ago. They had the relegation. So first and foremost, and I think all fans' minds is, you know, stay. I think second, they were excited about, you know, with new ownership, 
as a majority owner, I certainly have the, the, my partners still in at 10% of the team. We bought 90% of it and they're fantastic partners. And they did, they did what they wanted to do. They got the team to Syria for all of our benefits. And f- what our fans have seen from us, I think, is, you know, we made the first eight player acquisitions, bringing some new and young, talented players from around the world in. We promoted two players up from our Primavera. So you have 10 new faces on the team once they're all healthy. So I think that new and investment was extremely exciting for the fans. So that's kind of the feedback is they'll say to me, oh, gosh, you know, I think Bushi's going to be great. I think Mahila's going to be great. You know, they'll kind of they'll have the ones that true know, truly are the fans will know who we purchased and which ones they like. <laughs> now, I had read that you had spoken to some other North American owners of Serie A teams, uh, including Joey Saputo, who owns uh, uh, Bologna now. Uh, including Rocco Camiso, who owns Fiorentina. Those are two big personality guys, uh, having spoken to them myself. What what did you learn from talking to them? Well, when I was first talking to them, it was the conversation around, okay, um, what advice do you have for me? What, What do I not know, which is a lot? Um, you know, what do you think? How do you feel? And that feedback they gave me, they were very supportive, very positive. I've, I've said it in other conversations that both of those could not have been more kind in what they did to try to support. And I, for me, it was really just learning in the conversations, getting their feedback. And really, as you, you sort of vet the Parma as an opportunity, saying, is, does it make sense, not make sense? And the whole Parma deal came together, together very quickly. And so it was a um, kind of from talking to them to then me sending them the email the day that it closed saying, oh, by the way, thank you. We did this. Uh, But they were they were very helpful, very supportive. And what sort of is the stadium situation with Parma and and what are you potentially hoping to do on the stadium side? Well, I think, you know, we've got a stadium today that has some very positive parts about it. For example, there's no track that runs around the field. There's things like that that you say, okay, this is this is doable. Size-wise, location-wise, uh, both of those are are good and positive. But it's almost 100 years old, and so now you're starting to say, okay, what do you, what do you do with this? And there's been some updates to it, but the updates, you know, adding suites, things like that, that have made the stadium uh, improved is not necessarily to the end game of what it needs to be. And so what I see the stadium being is looking at what are stadiums and arenas around the world and the United States has you know some of the best not exclusively and what is that experience and how that should what should that be in Italy in a Serie A standpoint and so I think what we hope to do is take you know the best of what you have from an Italian stadium and the, the fans and that passion and combine it to more of an international experience of what it should be and you don't want to lose the the purity of the game and become too much, but certainly from a food standpoint, from an amenity standpoint, of what you do from a technology standpoint, how, how the players are treated within the locker rooms, all those things can be enhanced. So it's basically a some version of a start over um, to the stadium, but keep the stadium that we have. So looking for a complete transformation. Syria approved the sale of 10% of the commercial and broadcast rights to a private equity firm for anywhere from, I think it was $1.5 billion to $2 billion. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's very, very positive for the league. I think it's one of those things that makes a Syria investment a 
even better investment as that happens. So this conversation has been going on for, I don't know, 12 plus months, I think, about what needs to happen. And I think what you have is you bring in people who do this for a living. The PE firms know how to market and they bring that expertise. They have a vested interest of 10% ownership of the marketing side of what's happening. And I think you're going to see great things. I mean, you look at Formula One and from an experience standpoint, and certainly the experience, I'm a Formula One fan, and from a fan experience standpoint, watched on TV, the technology that you see, the interaction with the with the insiders uh, in Formula One, I think you're going to see that same type of enhanced fan experience around the world from what will happen with CBC and the Serie A. So I think it's basically nothing but positive upside. I think, you know, optimistically, can Serie A go back to being the number one league in the world with some type of additional marketing? It's going to have to knock the EPL off, but uh, it's that type of thing that needs to happen to be a worldwide sport. I mean, I think back to the late 90s, and that Parma team had some huge names on it. I, I became friends with Hernan Crespo because I worked with him uh, at the World Cup for Fox. Great guy. Uh, you know, had some great years at Parma. Gigi Buffon was at Parma. Lillian Turam, Fabio Cannavaro. I mean, they had some players. Have you done any outreach? Have you connected with any of, of those guys about sort of what you're doing with your project there? Uh, not as much as I could be at this point. There's a little bit of follow. I may follow them. They may follow me on Twitter. So I have a little bit of just that, you know, you know some some sort of distant touch there. I was in a press conference in Parma and they asked me, you know, like, you know, name my favorite Parma player question kind of thing. And I, I said Fabio Cannavaro, uh, as just a you know great player, national team, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Alessandro Lucarelli was in the room when I said it, so I had to apologize <laughs> to him as one of our more, most recent famous players. But uh, uh, yeah, I think and then so kind of our we had a little bit of a connection, but I haven't spent I, I haven't spent the time on that part. This whole thing's been very whirlwind. But yeah, we as you mentioned, a group of names and just it's fantastic to see them. And as you kind of look at you know our the Parma Calcio Twitter feed is they sort of pop up these names up and um, and you just talk to, I mean, it's like, okay, you know, we signed a new Romanian. Then you look at the, you know, Mutu back in the day that played for us. And so there's, there's just players all over the world that played for us, we signed Argentinian, you know, we can list the Argentinians that played for us. So signed a couple Argentinians. So those connections will continue, I think, to, to help us uh, for what they see players from the country here. They see the brand getting even stronger from a from a club standpoint and there's just they're fantastic players and did i read that your son is is working sort of on the ground with the club yes i um i have five kids one of them um has been involved in sports and sports analytics um in the nba with the magic then came back to work on a pro iowa move so he's over there as our director of analytics today and building out, you know, almost non-existing analytics program that we have and starting to create that as one of our competencies. And so he's um, active and involved doing that and helping make that happen. I'm always excited when I hear about analytics becoming more involved in a club. And one of the, like so many clubs are doing it now, but what I found is there's sometimes a disconnect between um, whether the manager actually listens to the analytics guy I would hope that they listen to your analytics guy. <laughs> well, and hopefully it's a team, not just a guy. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a change management issue. You know, you look at analytics. Analytics touches every 
part of what you do, and I'm talking just the, on the call it the soccer side of analytics. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, ticket management and those types of analytics that, that happen also. But just on, on the side, I was talking to my son Oliver this morning about analytics around the medical part of our staff and injuries and tracking our players and doing and so analytics becomes all encompassing and it's a change management where you need the medical staff in favor, you need the coaching staff in favor, you need the sporting director in favor, uh scouting. I mean each of those parts on on the soccer slash football side of what we're doing needs to buy into what it is. Now we're not going to be a hundred percent like this is stare at a computer and never watch a player play analytics. I mean there's there's a there's a mix of of both, of watching and studying. But I think there's plenty of opportunity from that. And it's also bringing our people along. Uh, everybody today is positive about it. But for all of us, you don't know what you don't know. And as you start to live it, things will change. But I think it's an important part of the future for all sports, including soccer. How public, how much do you want, how, how public do you want to be like in the Italian media with your team? Because several of these team presidents slash owners that we see in Italian soccer are really public in, in the media there. Are, are you wanting to do that? Uh, no, I <laughs> naturally in the position, you know, I'm, I'm president. So as El Presidente, there is a publicity piece to that. And, you know, however you follow soccer news in Italy, you know, you show up in the news there a lot more often than I show up in America for our companies here. So there's no comparison. And I was forewarned of that. That, that was what it was going to be. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't need to be making the the quotes, the the statements um, on a, a publicity basis. I'm happy to talk on behalf of the team. I'm happy to do you know great conversations like this to talk about what we're doing. But I don't need to probably be out there every day um, being that voice. <laughs> I wanted to ask if you had read a story in The Athletic from a couple years ago. It was, it was a pretty amazing story. And, and Mike Piazza had bought an Italian soccer team, the, the baseball player. And when he first bought it, I had him on my podcast and, and he was really excited. And it didn't work out. And I was wondering if you had read that story in The Athletic and if there were any lessons to be learned from it. Wow. Uh, yes, I read the story. Um, it was, and I, I read it, you know, whatever, a while ago, whatever the right timing of that thing. Um, but I, and I actually, I shared the story with some of my team here in America that was helping work on the project. I, it's, um, I think from lessons learned, I look at it, it's, it's a business. You know, we own a club. We're lucky enough to own a club, Parma Calcio, but it's a business. And, you know, I can't speak to what Mike and his wife should have, shouldn't have done. I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't know enough to make that comments besides what I've read. But, you know, we will run this as a business. We'll have a ton of fun along the way. And we'll, you learn from everybody's experiences, positive and negative that they've had doing that. And he had some negative ones and it's too bad. Um, but, uh, I, uh, and he's just right down the road from us, you know, we, we, as those things were happening. So it's it's uh, there's a lot of proximity to it also. But I I think for us, it's first and foremost, it's it's a we, it's more family business. It's one of our businesses that we, you know, look forward to owning for, you know, generationally. 
And we need to run it on a sustainable basis to do that. You mentioned that to your fans there that avoiding relegation is huge. It's still early, obviously, in the season. Uh, but Parma's one point out of the relegation zone at the moment. Did the existence of relegation impact your decision to buy the club? Or, or how does like the sort of possibility that's always there, how does that influence an owner? Well, I think it it certainly is real. I think within Parma, from a leadership management standpoint, because of, one, the unluckiness of getting relegated through bankruptcy and then maybe the positive on the promotion side, I, I look at our results to date and say we're probably right where we should be. You know, we've had 10 to 12 players out from the first team for multiple games. And of the eight players that we purchased, you know, some of those guys haven't even dressed yet for us. And so we're in this part about getting our players that through COVID, our players through injury, the players that we purchased to be on the field, hopefully even this weekend. There's, but it's in that sense. And by the way, new owner, new sporting director, new coach. There's a ton of change, a new style. So I view where we're at today as kind of being some version of probably where we should be from a results and from a point standpoint. You know, maybe you said we could have got two more points there. Maybe we stole a point over there that maybe we shouldn't have gotten. And so I think from that, I feel good. I think getting our players, you start putting the that group of new players challenging the existing first team uh, in spots, training, practicing together. Uh, I think I'm optimistic for 2020, 2021. I think I also I didn't say that we had, you know, there was no summer training. You just came, you showed up and started to play and you're playing on a regular basis and you have these international breaks. I think I saw a quote, I think it was Andrea Pirlo said, he'll have four training sessions in a month and 10 games. Wow. And that's, and we're not Champions League, but we still have the Copa Italia, the games and the lack of training sessions because, you know, we had eight players called up this last week internationally. So those eight players aren't in camp and they're not trained. And so they'll show up today, tomorrow, be ready to start training tomorrow. Well, we have a game Sunday. And so that all makes it more difficult, but that's just upside from where we are today. Looking at the future, where do you want Parma to be in five years and 10 years? Well, look, we finished uh, 11th place last year. We have a lot of change going on. I think if we can just gain a place in the standings every year, that that's kind of this year, is it 10, is it nine? First, you know, what what does that look like over the next few years? And so if you start looking five to 10, which is your question, I think the five to 10, you know, you want to play in Europe on a, on either occasional or a regular basis. And I don't want to set expectations too high. We're brand new into this thing and there's a lot of change occurring. But certainly for Parma playing in Europe in that window is a very realistic goal, I think, for us. But there's also the entire Serie A keeps getting stronger. So it gets to be more more difficult. And some of the other ones like us that want to be knocking on the doors, the guys already playing in Europe are also growing what they're doing. But that would be, I would put that for our expectations. I know you have this this family deep connection with Italy. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, though, to sort of get your idea as someone who owns a soccer team of MLS teams going for expansion fees of $325 million these days. And then that doesn't even include building a stadium and getting your team going. Is that a good investment from your perspective? That's a great question. It's interesting as I, as I talk to Italians about that. I mean, 
they can't even sort of fathom that because then you have the conversation. You look at, you know, if you look at transfer market today, they're going to value our team at Parma. I got to think in dollars, it's somewhere around, I don't know, $130 million, something like that. Uh, you know, you buy the expansion team in the U.S., your, friend, your player values are zero. So you even have that. I know you said that, but just that connection there plus the stadium. And so I, I think to many, it seems like it's, it's a large number, but I, you know, as you point out in the open, having had the opportunity to own the Des Moines Menace for a long, long time, certainly I've watched MLS through its entire uh, evolution and I'm super excited about what they're, what they're doing. I think for me here in Des Moines, you know, MLS, I don't think is a realistic franchise having Des Moines. So the, uh, USL championship, you know, the, the level below, is a is one that I'm obviously optimistic on U.S. soccer as being one buying a franchise and building a stadium in Des Moines for that. So I think the U.S. soccer uh, is great as far as an investment. You know, a MLS team wasn't right for me from a geography standpoint, uh, but that's not to say there's a bunch of smart people doing it and there's been plenty of upside. So I, I, I wish them all the luck. Well, fill me in a little bit on what you're doing in Iowa with your team or what you're hoping to do, because, you know, you've been doing that for for quite a while. Yeah, it's 20 some seasons or whatever I've owned uh, the Des Moines Menace. And it puts me some version of one of the longer continuing owners of an American soccer franchise. Uh, and, you know, we're League Two, so fourth division on a worldwide conversation basis. And, you know, I've had a ton of great success. Um, we didn't get to play in 2020 uh, due to COVID, but we were, we were undefeated during the regular season in 18 and 19. So good success. But also, more importantly for that team, we're producing players that are now playing pro soccer in Championship League, MLS. And that's really what you're trying to do at League Two. When you go to Championship for us here in Des Moines, that project that we're, we're calling today Pro Iowa until we start to get franchise names, that project's building a, you know, a $60 million stadium in downtown Des Moines of having a championship team in there. And I think certainly with the, with the Permacalcio, it creates a nice connection between what we have here in America and what we have now in Italy. And so that just makes that a, even a, a better thing. But I think it's, it's great for Iowa to have it as a, as a soccer fan. It'll be as much as I love the menace. It'll be fun to have a professional team with, you know, player, professional players on our team as they're playing for us. So we're, um, knock on wood, two and a half years from, uh, first kick with that. Need to get the stadium built. Uh, things are progressing the right way despite uh, COVID. We did push back the date by a year, um, but things are progressing. So yeah, it's um, like I said, I love the game. I think it's a great opportunity. Um, certainly, a franchise in USLC is less than an MLS franchise, so a little more affordable from the Des Moines market. Kyle Kraus is the Iowa-based chairman and CEO of Kraus Group, the longtime owner of the Des Moines Menace, and recently became the owner of Italy's Parma. Kyle, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good luck with everything. Hey, Grant, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, certainly, you do great stuff with soccer and, and how, you, how you covered over a long period of time. So it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Kyle Krause, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham, I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Football.